Well, um, the Bible says it's the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Amen. Amen. So prophecy should always point to Jesus. And this morning I'm going to be sharing and talking about something that I really fa am fascinated about. I love exploring the nature of God and who God is. And um, I love learning more about God. I want to know Him more. Um, what I want to, I, I believe that in my life, I want, I want to know Him and make Him known. That's like the core of who I am. I want to know Him and then make Him known. And one of the aspects about God um, that, I, that I really love is that He's a God who sees. He's a God who sees. And that's what I'm going to be touching on this morning. I'm going to be exploring that aspect of who He is, the God who sees. That's, that's my title. So Holy Spirit, come fill my heart, mind, and mouth with your words. Speak to our hearts. We want to hear from heaven this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so a couple of scriptures. Psalm 33 verse 13 says, The Lord looks from heaven and sees all the sons of men. That's men and women, ladies. Psalm 139, 15 to 16 says, My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. And in your book they were all written, the days fashioned for me when as yet there were none of them. So he sees us now. He saw us before we were even born. He saw the days of our lives and fashioned them for us before there was one of them. Hebrews 4 verse 13 in the NLT says, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God. Nothing is hidden. Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes, and he is the one to whom we are accountable. Hebrews 4 verse 13 in the NKJV says, And not a creature exists that is concealed from his sight, but all things are open and exposed, naked and defenseless to the eyes of him with whom we are accountable, with whom we have to do. He sees everything. For the ways of man are directly before the eyes of the Lord, and he who would have us live soberly, chastely, and godly carefully weighs all man's, all man's goings. I find this scripture quite fascinating because I think it applies to church. Like we count church members to see how we're doing in church, don't we? Like one, two, three, four, five, six. Oh, okay, now we, today we're on 20. Next week we're on 25. Oh, okay, we're doing quite well. But here it, it just gives me an inkling that God doesn't always count. He doesn't see things the way we do because he weighs. So I think when he looks at churches, he weighs them. Like, how deep is this discipleship? How solid are these people? We're counting the seats, the people seated in the chairs. God is, is weighing the church. How are you doing, guys, with your discipleship? That's what I think. Because God weighs all our goings. If he had to weigh you, how much would you weigh in the spirit? Just a thought, just an idea. Proverbs 5.21 says, The Lord sees everything you do. Wherever you go, He's watching. Job 24.23, He may let them rest in a feeling of security, but His eyes are on their ways. So God is a God who sees. He sees everything. When you think you're hidden, He sees. In, uh, when Jesus teaches on prayer and fasting and giving, He talks about the secret place. And He says, God is in the secret place. And so sometimes when we do things in secret and we think God can't see, in actual fact, God is in the secret place. And um, a scripture that I'm wanting to unpack a little bit uh, before I get going on my, the rest of my message is Psalm 33, verse 13 to 15. It says, The Lord looks down from heaven and sees every person. 
From his throne he watches all who live on earth. He made, fashions all their hearts and understands everything they do. And so that word looks down. It means to look intently at, to regard with pleasure, with favor, with care, to have respect. So when it says the Lord looks down from heaven, that's what it's saying. He's looking down with care. He's looking down with favor. Okay, he's looking down with respect. And then it says he looks down from heaven. He beholds all the sons of men. That word there is he considers, he discerns, he enjoys, he joyfully looks on. So when God looks at us and sees us, okay, that's it's the same word as sees, looks down, sees. Um, sorry, I've got the King James Version here in my notes and the New King James Version. So um, in, the, in the King James Version, it's beholds. In the New King James, it's sees. It's the same word and it means discern, enjoys, joyfully looks. So he looks at us. With favor, he looks at us with respect. He looks at us with discernment. He looks at us with joy. He looks at us to enjoy us. Okay? He enjoys what he sees, especially when he sees it through the blood of Jesus. Okay? From his throne, he watches all who lives and he understands everything they do. That word understands means to discern, to feel. So he feels us. Okay? He feels us. Okay, that's, that's very interesting for me. He instructs. This is all what understanding means. He looks with intelligence. He perceives. He regards. He skillfully teaches. He understands. He deals wisely. So when, when we look at that scripture that God is looking and he's considering and he's understanding, he's actually looking joyfully. He's looking with respect. He's looking lovingly. He's looking as he feels where we're really at. So God sees with joy, sees with understanding, sees with care, sees with favor, and he sees with skillful wisdom concerning where he's taking us and what we need to get us where we're going. So that is, that is the God who sees us. That is the God who sees me. That is the God who sees you and where you're at. And I, I think it's important that we understand how God views us. Like if I had a father who was abusive or if I had an authority figure that was abusive, when I hear God is my father, I'm going, to have a, I'm going to have a problem identifying with him as a God who looks lovingly, who feels where I'm at, who understands and all of those things. But that is who God is, and he wants us to know that. And as we explore this a little bit deeper this morning, I'm going to look at three different questions that God asks people in the Bible that I think, I'm hoping that some of them will apply to some of us today. I think that some of them will apply to us today. And um, they're questions that he asks that show me that he's a God who sees. Okay. And the first question that I'm wanting us to, to consider is found in Genesis and the beginning of Genesis. And as we know, God created Adam, God created Eve, and said, basically, shall not eat of the tree in the center of the garden. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was to, and I think I've heard, I've read or heard Danny Silk talk about this. Um, he's, a, he's a pastor at Bethel. But he said, you know, if, God, if, if I was to take my kids and put something somewhere for them that I didn't want them to touch, okay, I've got three boys, I would not put it in the center of the same room that I put them in, okay? But God took the tree, 
that he didn't want Adam to touch. <laughs> and he put it in the center of the garden where Adam was, okay? And, and, I, and I think I heard Danny Silk saying that he would have put it on the top of Mount Everest, and I would have as well. If I didn't want my kids to touch it, I would put it far from them. But God put it in the center of the garden. And, um, and there's a whole reason for that, because love has to provide choice. So because God loved Adam and wanted Adam to love, he had to provide the choice to love, the choice to obey, the choice to disobey. But that's a different sermon. But as we, as we know, God, um, Adam and Eve disobeyed God, and they did take from that a tree, and they ate the fruit, and they did what God told them not to do. And once they'd done that, they realized certain things. So they've sinned against God. They realize certain things. They're now ashamed. They don't actually want to hear from God or see God because they've disobeyed him. And they're hiding from him. And it says in Genesis 3, it says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. He was coming to find them. How many of you know sometimes when you sin against God, that's when he comes to find you? Okay? And you can't hide because he sees. <laughs> But they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And this is the question that God says, Adam, where are you? Where are you? Now, that interests me. Like, God knew where they were. Why did he say, where are you? Well, I, I think sometimes God asks us questions for our own good. Because he wants us to take stock of where we are. So he says to Adam, where are you? And Adam says, I heard your voice and so I hid, you know, and they have a whole discussion. And, um, but what I find interesting is that Adam was the one who sinned. Adam was the one who hid. God was the one who came walking, looking for Adam and asked him that question, where are you? Even though God knew where he was, even though God knew what he'd done. And, and Adam was running and Adam was hiding. And sometimes when we're the ones who've sinned, we hide, we run from God. Now, we might not run and hide in a garden. We might not make uh, uh, leaves to cover ourselves, but we hide by running away physically. We hide by, um, we, uh, by erecting walls in our hearts. We can harden our hearts. We can abandon something. We can abandon a relationship. We can abandon a calling. We can abandon an attempt at something. We can choose to not confront something because we want to remain under the radar and not be seen or noticed. God called out, where are you? Why? He doesn't, Adam actually needed to answer that question more than God needed the answer. Adam needed the help. And, and, I, and I love that God comes looking for Adam and he comes pursuing him in the place of hiddenness, in the place of shame. He sees exactly where Adam is at and he makes a way for him. You see, I heard a, a guy called Dr. Clarence McPherson and he was talking about this particular situation of Adam and Eve and creation and he was saying when God created Adam and Eve, he didn't give them throne room access, even though that was his final desire was for man to have throne room access because he knew what was going to happen, and he knew that if he gave throne room access <clears throat> excuse me, at the start, there would be a problem because he would have to be thrown out of the throne just like the enemy, just like the devil, because he would sin. But if he gave him garden access and allowed him to do his stuff there, I mean, that's why God had to come walking in the garden seeking out Adam, because Adam didn't have throne room access. 
but he knew that Adam was going to sin. He knew what was going to happen. He already made a provision for that. He already knew, okay, I'm going to at some point have to send my son who's going to have to die and give his life as a sacrifice so I can redeem them from garden, ac from garden access to throne room access. And I, I just, I love that whole concept because it shows me that God sees and he sees beforehand and he provides. That's what provision is. It's seeing something and providing for it before it happens. And I just love that. Um, a guy called John Pokinghorn said this, and he was a scientist, and he says, Gentlemen, when you look at the many contingencies of the earliest picoseconds of the universe, okay, a picosecond is the amount of time it takes for something traveling at the speed of light to cross the space, the, the width of a, of a single strand of hair. Okay, it's, it's basically, yeah, you can't imagine it, okay? Pokingord said, in the, in the earliest picoseconds of the universe, the fine-tuning of things had to be so amazingly precise. If you consider just one variable of the many, the expansion-contraction ratio, it had to be so exact that it would be like taking aim at a square-inch target at the other end of the universe, 20 billion light-years away, and hitting it bullseye. And that's just one of the contingencies that had to be precise for the universe to come into existence. And when I, when I heard that, I just thought, sure, the whole creation of the universe, it takes such a creator who can see far into, who can see like a marksman, who can just pull everything together, precise, exact. And if that is how God is with the universe, how exact is he with us and with our lives? Of course he is. Of course he is. He was exact with Adam. So with Adam, he asked him the question, where are you? And I'm wanting to tie that into another account that came to mind as I was reflecting on the whole aspect of a God who comes walking in the garden looking for Adam to another, to another account in the Gospels where Jesus comes walking in the darkest dark of the night to his people. And um, basically what had happened was Jesus and his disciples have just fed the 5,000 and we know that it was more than 5,000, right? because it was 5,000 men, so there must have been at least 20,000 if you count, count women and children. And so they fed that they tired, and Jesus says, you guys cross over the sea and go to Capernaum, and I'll follow. Okay, he doesn't say how, he just says, you guys go and I'll follow, and he goes up to the top of the mountain and he spends the evening in prayer. Now, this is interesting to me, it's very interesting, and because I, I can so identify with the disciples. And it says he instructs his disciples to get into the boat and go ahead of him and sail to Capernaum or Bethsaida. And um, he slips away to pray. Now, I'm taking this from Mark 6, verse 45 to 51. And it says, as the night fell, the boat was in the middle of the lake and Jesus was on land. The wind was against the disciples and he could see they were straining against, against the, at the oars against the weather. So Jesus on the mountain but he can see his disciples in the middle of the lake. Remember, he's a God who sees. So he's in prayer. I'm sure he's praying for them. But he's on the, he's on the top of the mountain praying. They're in the middle of the sea. And they're straining at the oars. And it says in this particular account, when it was almost morning, Jesus came to them. Now, if I read it, the same uh, account in John 6, it says, When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake. They got into a boat and set up off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing. The waters grew rough. 
They rowed about three or four miles, and then they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water. Now, just, just pause, press, press pause and think about it. They rowed all night, okay? So they must have been rowing for about nine hours. How many of you have ever sat on an erg machine at the gym and rowed? You maybe do 20 minutes or 30 minutes. Okay, try nine hours, okay? They've been rowing for nine hours. That's like how long they take to row one day in the doozy. You know the doozy, the doozy canoe marathon. Anyway, it's long and it's far. Now, if I think about it, swimming, a good swimmer could maybe swim that far, three, four miles in what, about two, maybe three hours. They've rowed for nine hours. The wind must have been really bad, okay? The storm must have been really tough. The waves must have been really big and they were afraid and Jesus hadn't come to them, okay? Now, sometimes we can feel like that in our lives. We feel like, God, I'm doing what you told me to do. I'm actually walking in obedience. I've done nothing wrong. The waves are big. The boat is not moving like I actually think it should move. You know, like at home, the kids are doing this, they're doing that. I feel like I'm just rowing, trying to keep the boat pointed in the right direction so that we get to the right place. And I'm like, God, are you even in my boat? Now, they hadn't disobeyed God. Adam disobeyed God. And God came looking for Adam. In this case, Jesus came walking to them, but he came just before morning. So it means they were rowing all night and he wasn't in their boat. He saw them and he was praying for them, but he wasn't in their boat. And they had to keep rowing all through the night until the morning came. Now, the, they say that the night is darkest just before the morning. So Jesus came to them at the darkest part of their journey. Now, was it an indifferent seeing that where Jesus looked at them? I doubt it. He could see what was happening, and he was likely praying for them, okay? And suddenly he's there, but it wasn't a suddenly because he always knew he was going to be there. You know, if I think about Adam, Adam disobeyed. God came looking for him. If I think about the disciples, the disciples obeyed, and Jesus took a long time to come walking, but he still came walking. He knew exactly where they were. Now, Maybe you can identify with Adam. Maybe you can identify with the disciples. But wherever we find ourselves, God knows where we're at. God comes in his time. He sees where we're at, and he is coming, and he, he will come. And we just have to keep going in the right direction, and we'll get there. Amen. So the first question that I want us to just think about is God saying, where are you? Where are you in your life? Are you hiding or are you walking in obedience? The second question is a question that he asks Hagar. And I, I also love this portion of scripture. It's taken from Genesis 16. And basically, as you know, God gave Sarah and Abraham a promise they were going to have a child. They don't have a child for a very long time. And uh, they make their own plan. You know, sometimes when the promises of God don't come into being, sometimes we make our own plans. We shouldn't, but we do. And they made their own plan. And um, Sarah said to Abraham, listen, let me give you Hagar, my servant, to sleep with. And in that way, we'll raise up offspring for us. And so that's what happens. And then once Hagar falls pregnant, Hagar despises Sarah. And Sarah begins to abuse Hagar and treat her very harshly. So now think about it. Hagar has obeyed her mistress. 
Hagar has done nothing wrong. And Hagar, well, apart from her heart, maybe she's, she's, her heart isn't right towards Sarah, but she's literally been obeying what authorities told her to do. And in the process, she gets abused. In the process, she's mistreated and she runs away. And God finds her in the wilderness and says, Hagar, Sarah's maid, where did you come from? And where are you intending to go? And I just love that because he's saying to her, well, first of all, he knows where she's come from and he knows where she's going. She probably doesn't know where she's going. But he says to her, Hagar, Sarah's maid, where did you come from and where are you going? And, and, and Hagar answers her, but she was running away. She was running away from abuse. She was running away from hurt. She was running away from pain. She was running away from the situation, and sometimes we can do that. We run away. You know, it may just look different. We may rain, remain physically present, but maybe our running away is we close our hearts. Maybe our running away is we smile on the outside, but we sit down and, and, and cross our arms on the inside, and we're not going anywhere. Maybe we are running away as we physically remove ourselves from situations. Maybe, I don't know what it is. There are many different ways that we run away. But God says to Hagar, Hagar, so what is he saying? He's saying, I know your name. I know who you are. I know you personally. I see you. Sarah's maid. I know what you've been doing. And I know you did what Sarah asked. I know you obeyed authority. Where did you come from and where are you going? Tell me your story. And that is God's heart. He's like, I know your name. I see where you're coming from. I see what's happened in your life. I know you've been abused. I know the pain. I know the hurt. Um, tell me your story. And he wants to hear you know, um, maybe God is saying that to you today. And he says to her, go back. He knows where to lead us. He knows where we need to be. He says, go back. And then he gives her a promise for her descendants. He gave her hope. He spoke to her heart. And that's what God does. He sees us. He gives us hope. He recognizes who we are. And he speaks life to our situation. And he says to her, see, you're with child. And you shall call his name Ishmael which means God hears because the Lord has heard and paid attention to your affliction. You see, God is a God who sees and God is a God who hears. And I love that, that um, there, Ishmael, God hears because the Lord has heard your affliction. And when I read that, and I've read it in other translations, you know, it makes me wonder, are there things that happen in the natural that God can hear in the spirits? You know, there's that scripture that speaks about how violence is heard in your land. Violence can cover your lips. Violence can be worn like a garment. And um, you, God can hear violence. So there's something, there's things that happen in the natural, I think, that God can hear. And the Lord says, yeah, I have heard your affliction. He heard her affliction. So that for me is beautiful. Genesis 16 verse 13 in a revised uh, Bible version says, So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, Have I not even here in the wilderness looked upon him who sees me and lived? Have I also seen the future purposes and designs of him who sees me? Isn't that beautiful? God saw her, and he saw her future, his future purposes. Remember that John Pokinghorn quote? He saw where he was taking her, you know? Maybe you can relate to the story. Maybe you've been wronged. Maybe you've been mistreated. Maybe you've been hurt. Maybe you were abused. Maybe you were doing what was asked of you and expected of you by those in authority, a boss, someone in authority, someone you were serving. 
Well, God sees and God hears and God knows. And he comes to you today and says, I have heard and I have seen. And he comes and he gives hope and he gives a promise to you. And he has hope for you. Where have you come from and where are you going? And as I was thinking about that, it, it reminded me of the account of the prodigal son and the loving father. And um, it reminded me of the heart of the, of the father towards his prodigal son. And at, you, you guys are aware of the story. This guy, the father has two sons. And the one son comes to him and says, Dad, give me everything. I want it now before you die. And he takes his inheritance and off he goes and he spends it all on prostitutes and, and extravagant living. And he runs out of cash, basically. He's broke. And he gets to a point where he's starving and he's feeding pigs in this land that he's gone to. And um, he's starting to eat the, the pods and the, and, the, and the pig's food because he's so starving. And he thinks to himself, there are many workers at my father's house who have all the food they want. Let me go home to my father's house and I'll, I'll just say to him, let me be one of your servants. And I was thinking, sure, Lord, in this particular account, it's like the prodigal son came to a point where he, where he thought to himself, you know, this is where I am. This is where I am, and this is where I want to go, you know? And he goes back to his father, and it says, From a distance away, his father sees him dressed as a beggar, and great compassion swells up in his heart. And his father races out to meet him. Don't you love the heart of this father? And it's a picture of the heart of Father God. And the father races out to meet him and sweeps him up in his arms and hugs him and kisses him. And the son says, Father, I was wrong. I've sinned against you. I'm, I, I'm, not, I, I'm not deserving to be called your son. Just let me be. He's going to say, let me be a servant. And the father interrupts him and says, son, you're home now. Bring me the robe. And then they have a whole party and the father celebrates and says, let's prepare a great feast and celebrate for this beloved son of mine is alive. He was dead and now he's alive. And... Yeah, in this, in this particular account, it's the son who has the aha moment. He's the one who realizes this is where I've come from and this is where I need to go. And he decides he want to be, wants to be a servant. Um, but the father, when he, when he welcomes him, he won't let him be a servant. He says, no, you're a son. Welcomes him with tender love. And, and the father is the one who was sinned against in this example. But he sees and he hears and he loves and he gives hope just like he did to Hagar because that is the heart of our Father who sees and hears and knows our situation. He sees us, He understands, He feels. The third question that I'm wanting us to take from here is the question of, that God asked Elijah. And um, as you know, well, the, Elijah has this big confrontation with the prophets of Baal up on Mount Carmel and he wins at the end of the day. You know, he's successful. There's a huge showdown, and he, it's him alone, and he faces these prophets of, Paul, prophets of Baal, and he wins at the end of the day. So he's come out victorious. And um, Ahab hears, like Ahab, who's the king, okay, hears, tells Jezebel, who's his wife, everything that Elijah's done. And, Eli and Jezebel sends a messenger to Elijah. This is one woman. He's just faced hundreds of prophets of Baal and he's won the victory. And, he, and one woman sends a message to Elijah saying, basically, so let the gods do to me and more if I do not make your life as one of those prophets by tomorrow this time. So he receives a threat from this one woman. And when he hears this, he runs for his life. And, you know, sometimes after our biggest victories, we, we, we get the biggest knockdowns. 
is somehow we're vulnerable when we just face this big victory. Anyway, Elijah's vulnerable when he faced, after he's faced and won this big victory. This one woman sends this threat. He runs for his life. And um, he runs and runs. And basically an angel comes to him and says, Arise and eat, your journey is great. And he eats this bread which lasts him 40 days and 40 nights. And that for me is also interesting because it's like Elijah's running. He's terrified. He's running for his life. And we do that sometimes. We run run away from situations, run away from people, run away from emotions, we run away from relationships, but God actually helped him run away. <laughs> God fed him and says, you know what, for the amount of running that you got in you, buddy, you better eat this bread because you need it to last you for 40 days and 40 nights, and God let him run, and he ran and ran and ran for 40 days and 40 nights, and then he went into a cave, and he spent the night in that place, he's hiding, and we do that too, we run and we hide, we hide in caves, you know, they just look different. They might not be physical caves. They might be exercise, or they might be sports, or they might be, sports, or they might be uh, video games, or they might be TV, or they might be books. We all have our caves that we run to. But he runs to this cave, and God says to him, Elijah, what are you doing here? Again, God knew what he was doing there. Okay, But he asked Elijah, what are you doing here? Why? For Elijah's sake. And Elijah says, I've been very zealous for God, for the children of Israel, have forsaken your covenant, they've done this, they've done that, they've killed your prophets, and I alone am left, and they seek to take my life, okay? And um, the Lord speaks to him and says, go and stand out, uh, outside, out of the cave, and the Lord passes by in a great and strong wind, and the Lord passes by in an earthquake, but the Lord is not an earthquake, and then after an earthquake there's a fire, but the Lord's voice was not on the fire, and then after the fire there's a still small voice, and Elijah hears the voice, and he wraps his face, and he listens, and the Lord says to him again, what are you doing here, Elijah? And sometimes I think God wants to say that to us. What are you doing here? And why did God cause an earthquake and that great wind and the fire? And I think he did that because Elijah, the voices inside Elijah, the fear inside Elijah was so loud that he couldn't hear that still small voice, which is God. And sometimes that happens to us where the voices inside of us, the fear and the hurt, it's so loud and it's driving us into this cave that we, we want to go into because we think we're safe there. And... Um, God is, saying to, God is saying to us, what are you doing here? He said to Elijah, what are you doing here? And Elijah says again, I've been very zealous. I just won this great victory. Very zealous. And I, you know, I did all these things. You're, uh, uh, basically, and I alone am left. And they seek to take my life. You know, he's like, I'm the only one who felt completely isolated. And sometimes we also feel isolated. But it's so interesting for me that God responds and basically says to him, you know what, dude, you're not the only one. There are actually many more because God is a God who sees. We need to learn to trust him and not run into caves of our own making, but run into God who's our refuge. And the Lord says to him, basically, go and anoint this one, anoint his ale as king over Syria, anoint Jehu as king over Israel, anoint Elisha in your place. And it says, whoever, it shall be whoever escapes the sword of Hazael, Jehu will kill. Whoever escapes Jehu, Elisha will kill. Yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth is and that has not kissed him. What is he saying? Dude, you know what? You're not alone. There's 7,000 others of you, you know. Sometimes when we feel so alone, we need to run into God because he sees and he knows the situation better than we do ourselves. Amen. Mm. 
Elijah didn't see the situation aright. And we always have to say to God, God, let me see as you see. God had a bird's eye view. God understood the situation better than Elijah. You know? I think Elijah was strong on responsibility. I think he carried the weight of the calling and the responsibility of the nation on his shoulders and it almost crushed him. He thought he was the only one. You know, he was the, the only one. Maybe he had a savior complex. <laughs> like, I'm the only one, God, you know? And, um, and I know sometimes there's an intercessor. Sometimes I, when I see so many burdens to pray for, I can also feel so overwhelmed, you know, like, Lord, who's going to pick up this burden and who's going to pray for that? And then there's this as well. And then there's that and there's that. And the Lord was speaking to me this week. You know what? <laughs> You're not the only one. <laughs> Just pick up the burdens that I've given you to pick up. Just pray for those things that I've given you to pray for. Because otherwise we, otherwise we can be crushed by the burdens. Amen. And an example that I'm uh, uh, wanting to talk about in this particular, under this particular question is um, a poet, a famous poet, and you've probably heard of him, Francis Thompson. And um, his father was a Catholic, his father was a doctor, and his father really wanted his son to study medicine. And Francis wanted to write, he was a gifted writer, he was a gifted poet, a gifted essayist, and he did go and study medicine for eight years, but he never practiced. It wasn't his thing. He didn't like it. Okay? He did it for his father. He struggled through it. And he ended up on the streets of London selling matches to try and eke out a living. So he was really poor. And um, he ended up hooked on opium. He was, he was a bit sickly. He ended up hooked on opium. And he would walk the streets of London, walk uh, the streets, uh, walk the river, river Thames, and he would sleep with the with the addicts and the down and outs, the homeless people at Charing Cross. And um, he would write these letters to the editor, uh, to, the, to the editor of the newspaper at the time, and they were, they were amazed by it. They said, you know, wow, one greater than Milton lives, uh, is basically living today and is sending us these things. But there wasn't a return address. He was homeless. He was living on the streets. He was destitute. So he, was, he became a drug addict, hooked on opium. And um, he wrote this, this famous poem, The Hound of Heaven, and I'm going to read some expert excerpts because it's a picture of that God who pursues. Remember how Elijah ran and ran and ran for 40 days and 40 nights and hid in a cave. And God allowed him. God allowed him to run and run himself until he was at the end, you know, at maybe at the end of himself in a cave. And God pursued him and allowed him to do that. And this is a picture of that for me. And he says, I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind, and in the midst of tears I hid from him. And under running laughter, upvisted hopes I sped, and shot precipitated adown titanic glooms of chasmed fears from those strong feet that followed, followed after. But with unhurrying chase and unperturbed pace, deliberate speed, majestic instancy, and then he write, continues to write, and at the end of another verse, he says, Still, with unhurrying chase, unperturbed pace, deliberate speed, majestic instancy, came on the following feet, and a voice above their beat, Nought shelters thee who will not shelter me. And he carries on and he writes, Nigh and nigh draws the chase with unperturbed pace, deliberate speed, majestic instancy, and past those noised feet, a voice comes yet more fleet. Lo, naught contents thee who contents not me. 
And then he finishes his poem, Ah, fondest, blindest, weakest, I am he thou seekest. Thou dravest love from thee who dravest me. So God basically apprehended him at the end. He's saying he was running from God, but God never gave up pursuing him. And um, he also penned this poem, which at the end is just it's so beautiful. It's a picture of that. Yeah, God found him where he was at, at Charing Cross with the down and outs, rejected by his father, complete disappointment to his father. And um, he writes this. He says, O world invisible, we view thee. O world intangible, we touch thee. O world unknowable, we know thee. Inapprehensible, we clutch thee. Does a fish soar to find the ocean, or an eagle plunge to find the air? That we ask of the stars in motion, if they have rumor of thee there. Not while the wheeling systems darken and our benumbed conceiving soars. The drift of pinions would we hearken beats on our own clay-shuttered doors. Ye angels, keep their ancient places, touch but a stone and start a wing. Tis ye, tis your estranged faces have missed the many splendid thing. But when so sad, thou canst not sadder cry, and upon thy so sore loss shall shine the traffic of Jacob's ladder pitched between heaven and Charing Cross. Yea, in the night my soul, my daughter, cry, clinging heaven by the hems. Lo, Christ, walking on the water, not of Gennesaret, but Thames. You see, God pursued him. God found him in the middle of his drug-addicted stupor. He found him right in Charing Cross. Christ, he had a vision of Christ coming to him on the Thames. So beautiful. God saw him. God pursued him. God came to him. His lowest place was not so low that God didn't see him. And it really touches me. It really touches me. In both of these examples, God saw and God pursued. You know, um, we see in Jesus that he's a God who pursues as well in John 1. If you look at John 1 from verse 35 to 43, if you just look at the verbs, it says, Then Jesus turned and seeing them following said to them, what do you seek? Then Jesus said to them, come and see. Then Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon. You shall be called Cephas. And the following day, Jesus found Philip. So we see that God, Jesus was looking. He was speaking. He was searching. He was finding. He was active in the process of reaching out to his disciples. And God is like that. God is a God who sees us. He's a God who sees well. He's a God who has excellent sight. He's a God who asks us questions because he wants us to see. He didn't ask these three questions because he didn't know the answer. He asked these three questions because he wanted the people concerned to take stock of where they were at. He wanted them to see his heart, and he wanted them to see as he sees. And that is how God is even for us today. He wants to lead us on in his provision. Now, as I round up this message and I've wanted to keep it brief I've wanted to keep it simple um, maybe you like Adam have sinned and are hiding maybe there's an area in your life maybe you can just bow your bow your bow your heads and close your eyes maybe maybe you've sinned maybe you're hiding maybe there's something in your life you, you're a bit ashamed of you're not proud of but God sees you and God already made provision for this just like he made provision for Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden he already made provision. It doesn't mean there won't be consequences for your decision. It just means that he saw beforehand and he's provided a way for you. He's located you. 
And he comes walking to you this morning saying, where are you? Maybe you, like the disciples, you've been rowing against the elements. It's tough. You're obeying him. You're walking in obedience. But the waves are big and the wind is strong and it's blowing against you and you feel like you're walking backwards and you feel abandoned. You don't see Jesus in your boat. You don't hear him in your boat. And it's tough and it's hard and you can't feel his presence. Well, he knows where you are and he's probably praying for you and he sees you where you're at. And at the right moment, he'll come and climb into your boat. And you know what happened with those disciples when Jesus climbed into the boat? It says immediately they were at their destination. So when Jesus climbs into your boat, there's a suddenly that happens. And all we have to do is keep rowing and keep the boat pointed in the right direction and keep on doing the things that we have to do every day to keep moving forward, even if it's two steps forward and one step back. Maybe that's you. Or maybe you, like Hagar, have been sinned against. You've been hurt and you've wanted to run. Maybe you've been mistreated. Maybe you were abused. Maybe you were taken for granted. Maybe you were unappreciated. But God has heard your affliction and he sees where you're at. And he has a hope for you. And he has a direction for you. And he has a promise for you. He's got an inheritance for you. And he's got somewhere for you to belong Maybe that's you. Maybe you, like the prodigal son, have wandered from your father in one way or another. Maybe, maybe you've black, backslidden from your place in God's household. And the father wants you to know his heart for you this morning. He wants you to know that he sees you and that he longs for you to return and that you're a child of his. And that when you come back, you don't need to come back ashamed and with a servant's mentality. But you come back as a child as one who's the apple of his eye, whom he's tender towards. Or maybe you're like Elijah, you fought and you fought well and you've been victorious for God and you've won victories and you're facing backlash and it's been difficult and you've felt, you felt isolated and you felt alone and the voices inside, maybe, maybe they drowned out the voice of God. Maybe, maybe you need those voices quietened or maybe you need God to hear that still small voice or maybe you just need the assurance that you're not alone, that there's still others I just want to give you the opportunity, if you fall into any of these categories, I'd, actually, I'd like to pray for you this morning. If you could just slip up your hands with every eye closed, every head bowed. Do any of you identify with any of those places? Is there anyone this morning? Thanks, you can slip down your hands. Father, I pray for those who've slipped up their hands. And Lord, we ask this morning, wherever they find themselves, that you would reveal to them that you're a God who sees, that you're a God who sees exactly where they're at. Father, that you're a God who strengthens, that you're a God who goes before. We just speak a quietening to the voices inside, even to the loud voices outside. We thank you for a sensitivity to your voice, for an ability to hear your voice. Lord, I thank you for a supernatural strength to keep rowing, to keep getting up every morning, to keep doing the things that we know we need to do to keep the boat pointed in the right direction. Strength to do that and a faith to arise within us. We pray that you would truly give us a revelation that you are the God who sees. You see us, Lord God, in the deepest, darkest place where no one else sees. You see the emotions, you see the hurt, you see the abuse, you see where we've been mistreated, Lord, where we've been taken for granted, you see. And I thank you, Lord God, for a healing and a restoration 
and a grace, Lord God, to continue moving forward this morning. Lord, if there's anyone who's backslidden, we just, we thank you, Lord God, for a grace to turn and run into your arms, to turn over a new leaf this morning, Lord, to receive you as Savior and Lord and Father this morning. Okay, so Lord, we thank you for this word, and I pray that as we go from here, Lord, it would accomplish that which it's sent for, that it would land in our hearts, Holy Spirit, that you would continue to speak to us, you would continue to reveal your heart as a father, your heart as the God who sees where we're at, Lord. May you continue to ask us questions that will help us to move to our next level. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.